Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. And I know the lure of vengeance. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and a good partnership is only made so by candid discourse. I love our partnership, Dan. <laughs> I do too. I, I remember that line of thinking, oh, that, that's going to be the line. I know Anna's going to love oh, that. Oh, <laughs> uh, we have candid discourse, that's for sure. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Tripolar instability. And catastrophism. Today, we'll be talking about the 2018 movie Prospect, which is available at Hulu anywhere else. I think it's elsewhere, too. It could be. I mean, you could obviously watch it on Amazon it's Prime. It's around. Yeah, yeah, it's around. And it's, it was on Netflix before. I think that was the first time, the first time I watched it was on Netflix. Okay. So it'll billy around. Yeah. And after this, Dan, we start. Bum, bum. April. Everything, I feel like everywhere, Michael Bay. <laughs> bay, bay, bay. <laughs> you can't see the explosions happening behind us, but we are walking towards our microphones with explosions. Behind us. Behind we have lit us. the match yes. and we are walking away. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's everything, everywhere, Michael Bay, which I confess I sort of came up with Bapril before the idea of doing the films of Michael Bay. <laughs> I just liked how Bapril sound, <laughs> sounded. So now we're stuck. Yep. We do this every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> we're pot committed, listeners. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we commit to the bit. Yep. Sometimes it doesn't work out perfectly. <laughs> Butler Vember was good and bad. I don't regret Butler Vember. No. I do regret coming up with the name Butler Vember and then deciding we had to do it. So let's... We're going to... But Anna, I got to say Butler Vember so often. Like, you, you did. Know, that, I enjoyed April, that. Yes. And that means Armageddon is next. Oh, yeah which I am very much looking forward to and could not be any more different from this film in some ways that we are doing oh, to talk about today. <laughs> yeah. To get a little bit of like aesthetic whiplash. Yeah. If you haven't realized it by now, we are a podcast about science fiction and we rely on our patrons to get made and you can support us if you aren't already at patreon.com slash space the nation. Mm -hmm. And a great way to support us is to tell your friends and neighbors and rate and review, but the patrons, the patrons get something besides the warm, fuzzy feeling of passing the love of Space the Nation on. Dan, what, what do our patrons get? Wait, well, what? Did I, I say well, something I, No, more? no, no. It's just like the warm, fuzzy feeling is pretty awesome. I don't think we should undersell oh, that. The warm, oh, fuzzy okay. feeling is pretty right. significant. And, you know, oh, true. they get to participate in the... It's social capital. The social, capi social capital. The social Dan. capital built on our Discord channel, Anna, I think is significant. And we should not underestimate that. But in addition to that... They also get early access to the podcast. They get access to our monthly uh, AUAs. They also, in theory, get merch that is, I've been told, I, coming. I swear to God, <laughs> <laughs> after about a year of just kind of saying I would do it and turned into a joke about capitalism, I thought I'd actually have some shirts made. Mm -hmm. And it's just taking a while okay. to get i know like in theory there's like a thousand different places i could do it just upload an image and have it done but i'm trying to get actual good quality ones you know that which we can be is proud of. on brand for us i think so that's good that's, yeah I don't have so a problem with that. ideally not made in china but they might actually be made somewhere else but then screen printed here maybe okay so that's something the merch is so coming. trying to merch is coming i, I swear i swear and until then, you have social capital. That's true. And speaking of social capital, you can also reach us on social media. We are both on Mastodon and Post. I am still on Twitter. Anna is still on Instagram. She is writing for The New Republic. I am writing my own Substack. 
Uh, I think I got everything. You have a website. I have a website. That's it is AnnaMarieCox.com. I have a writing workshop that mm -hmm. I've been doing quarterly that is kind of awesome and new for me, but... Dan, it's so fun. I really love doing it. I'm happy. It, it is great. like satisfying to me in a way that no other professional venture has been. Oh, so. that's that's significant. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, Dan, I know you also like to teach. <laughs> like there's actually something it's true. Well, we've gotten corny about it before. Yeah. Like there is something really amazing about seeing someone come to understand or practice a skill yes that you've been able to cope help them coax out of them yes yeah. yeah that you haven't given them in fact that's actually part of the magic mm -hmm. is that you haven't like given it to them right they've taken what you've given them and turned it into something of their own it's really i can get I, it's, oh that's nice yeah, it's it right. dan how are you you know what, Anna? I'm a little sci-fi overwhelmed. I'm not going to lie. I, I mean, it's been interesting. So, like, you know, in addition to what we watch for this podcast, I've also been trying to keep up with Picard Season 3, which I have to admit is bringing some game. The first two seasons were crap. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, uh, not going to mince words there. This third season, though, which is essentially a Next Generation reunion, actually is... Like there's some serious emotional weight to this. I'm I'm I've been legit impressed with it. And then the Mandalorian is also back, so it's been tough to keep track of everything. There's been a lot going on. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm 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 pretty good. Let me see. I don't have any updates. I don't think I. I that's good though, Dan. Yeah. It is great. After a couple years, a few years of having lots of personal updates. <laughs> <laughs> like lots of things happening in my life. Boring can be good, Anna. <laughs> I am really into this. I'm yes. really into boring right now. So I'm just going to keep it with not much, Dan. Well done, not normal much. core, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Dan, why are we talking about Prospect? We are talking about Prospect, Anna, because I think this is the beginning of it all. This was the piece of intellectual property that figured out the blockbuster IP equation for Pedro Pascal, which is roguish Pedro Pascal character plus young character in need of protection plus anarchic sci-fi setting equals artistic and commercial gold. I am apologizing in advance for this. <laughs> Are you saying that Pascal's wager is a safe bet, Dan? But I'm... It's a dad joke for people that like philosophy. It's a, it's a philosophical dad joke. Aren't dad jokes all philosophical, though? And, you know, yes. And also, let's face it, Pedro Pascal is, I believe, internet daddy. I think that was the description of him. And you could argue... I thought you were going to go with he's a god. Yeah. yeah. But, but, I mean, <laughs> the weird thing is that, that I don't know how... Be. I actually don't know how much this film made. But, like, this set the template. You can argue that both The Mandalorian yeah. and The Last of Us follows in some ways hey, what's going on here hey dan did, did you forget as i did that pedro pascal played a single dad in wonder woman 1984 i knew he was maxwell lord i forgot he was a single father though i like i didn't even yeah. remember there was a kid i'm not gonna lie i've blacked out much of wonder woman 1984 I, we we talked I, about potentially doing it for the <laughs> podcast and then we both watched and we're like nope nope we're not yep. gonna go there nope yeah, it was a little bit of a Mercury movie, like sliding right over my brain, mm -hmm. but also just bad enough to stick a little bit. Yeah. Like, 
Although I do remember Pedro Pascal being entertaining. I he was good. Him. Yeah, no, no, no. He was, it, there was nothing bad about but him. But then the rest, everyone else is really bad. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> everyone else. Plotting was horrible. Yeah, we don't need to, we don't need to go there. All right. Speaking yeah. of things we don't need to go into. Yes. Dan, let the people know, will this podcast ruin the movie if you listen to the podcast first? I think the answer is no. To put it gently, the plot is not the strength of this film. It's a very simple plot. There's not a ton of surprises. There are a few, but like, you know, I, the, 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 the strength of this film is the world building, and we will talk about that a little bit, but that has to be sort of seen and experienced, is my opinion. Anna, what do you think? I believe that you are correct. Oh, excellent. That is what I think, Dan. That is great. Dan is right. Do you want to record me saying that, Dan? <laughs> Dan is right. I just want to say it more good. I just, we, Dan is correct. I just need to make that my ringtone. That's, you know, not a, not a big thing. But let's now get to the story behind the story. Anna, was this perchance an independent film? Because <laughs> it, it, just to be clear. What gave it away? Uh, yeah, you know, like you will not be surprised if you watch it, if it is. But. Even I, I don't mean that to belittle it. It's actually a stunning what they did in in making this film. And my understanding is it really didn't cost that much at all. It cost four million. Dan, Holy crap! Which is super cheap. Not as cheap as Vast of Night, which was a million dollars. But this looks a lot better. Yeah. Than Vast of Night. Yeah. You can see that three million right on the screen, Dan. You totally can. Well, let me put it this way: this, there are special <laughs> effects in this film. The special effects are actually great. And they're good. They're really yeah, good. They it's, are good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. like, they they and, good for them that they spent the money where it should go. And they got legit actors. Yeah. Uh, I little tiny bit of I was wondering how they got Pedro. Apparently, he saw the script and connected with it, which means it was his. He fell in love with that was his first dad connection i like how he vibed on the dad thing that's he vibed on the dad thing yeah. and then sophie thatcher also of yellow jackets mm -hmm. and the book of was, boba fett although we don't need to acknowledge that i i refuse to acknowledge yeah, yeah, it yeah. she was found from a videotape which funny story that's also how she was found for yellow jackets hmm. so she must make real good video that is what i think i can that. i can believe that one question is like um so obviously they were had a constrained budget. To what extent did that f affect how they they made what they made? I love this story. <laughs> <laughs> so they made the first version of this a short film right. for twenty one thousand dollars, which they raised through Kickstarter, okay. and they premiered that at two thousand fourteen South by Southwest Film Festival. Oh, got rave reviews as a short mm -hmm. and then decided to try and shop it around in Hollywood. And as you might note from the 2014 date of the South by Southwest Film Festival and then the actual release date of the movie, some time passed. It took some time. Yeah. It took some time. And it, they, what they had to say, the two filmmakers are uh, Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell. Mm -hmm. And they did a bunch of interviews after it came out. And one of the things they said that fascinated me was that they appreciated how much time it took to sell it because they kept working on the script over and over and over and taking the notes that they were given hmm. by various people hmm. up to a point. They both said that at some point they were like, no, this is this is it. We're sticking with this. Right, which but is how that, you kind of have to approach these things. I mean, like you can take notes, but there's a certain point after which it, if you're changing the core of something, there's no point to it. Yeah. Well, also, I think that they got to a point where they're like, no, this is our vision. Like, yeah. I, I just think it's interesting because we've talked before how constraints can make art. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and that that feels like what happened here. Okay. Also because they decided they, they are they met in Seattle, I believe, college up there and mm-hmm. not one of the famous No, it's like Pacific Western or something or Yeah, yeah, yeah I think. Yeah. yeah. And they decided to go ahead and make the movie there. All the forest scenes were shot mm-hmm. in you know, Pacific Northwest Forest, Olympia National Park, Olympic uh, National Park. Okay. And they decided they were going to do their own set building and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they just enlisted their friends <laughs> and rented a warehouse. As one does, you know. And started to build shit. And the way that they talk about that is also inspiring to me because they talk about how they kind of wrote the script and built things at the same time. Oh, that's pretty cool, and actually. They, I got to It was yeah. it's sort of, it's very Marxist, actually. They were like, <laughs> they, they were thinking their labor was very much informed the, the script and the script informed the labor. So right? they controlled but, both the intellectual means of production and then the actual means of production is what you're yeah, saying. And they, yeah, and they thought a lot about how the economics would affect how things looked mm-hmm. and how things looked would affect the economics. Hmm. And they were very interested in portraying what they thought of as like the everyman of this period hmm. right it's a very expansian kind of point of view no this expanse was never mentioned in any of the interviews <laughs> but, but let me put it this way there's a there's a brief shot where you see them like because they've all got helmets and they're not on the same comms channel where they're communicating it was like in some ways that that shot actually was more interesting in terms of explaining how the belters would have communicated than in, in some ways anything i've seen on the expanse so that was it was an impressive yeah. impressively well done just one more thing about them building everything, which is they said that they set their sights really high and no one told them they couldn't do something, right? <laughs> and because they had non-professional builders, mm-hmm. they just kept trying. Hmm. And I think what they wound up with was some really cool stuff. Oh, yes. Like everything feels real. Like yeah. it's it's sci-fi enough. It's techie enough to feel like it. It's sci-fi, but it's also gritty. It, it the, yeah. the way I would put it is, is that it feels a little bit... And I mean this as a compliment. It's like the first Star Wars. That's yeah. how it, it kind That's of... That's what they were going for. And I think they succeeded in that sense. Yes. Yes. Now, I'm a little reluctant to ask this question because I did look on IMDb, so I kind of know what the answer is. But I was surprised. I assume the filmmakers, you know, made this for $4 million. It got pretty decent critical reviews. I assume it sold... It did more than made $4 Made back the money. Made back sure. the money. I would have assumed they would have had, like, an automatic gig to make another film... You know, but what are they doing now? So they were offered a development deal with Amazon. Okay. We know how that has gone. (laughs) Which Um, is they haven't developed anything yet. That's right. Yeah. I regret to inform you that they have a new project. Uh Uh-huh. It is called The Fringe. Okay. It is a, what they're calling, see, The Fringe is the frontier of our sci-fi universe, Mm -hmm. a Wild West sandbox where all our stories will take place. Okay. Unincorporated and lawless, it's populated by a broad class of freelancers called drifters, miners, whatever, whatever. Yeah. The drifters will be the subjects of our NFTs. Oh! (laughs) Oh! I I almost was going to crack a cryptocurrency joke and, and, oh! And our stories, intended to span film, series, graphic novels, and more, 
largely the disenfranchised working class. It's through the perspectives of these people we want to explore the world via NFTs, as as one does, as the different. Yeah, because when I think disenfranchised, I automatically think of NFTs. Oh, yeah. God. So that was a couple of years ago, and I really haven't heard <laughs> much about it since. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm sure the NFTs have gone off like gangbusters. I mean, surely they must be, you know, you know, through the moon now because like that whole business is just, you know, it's gone mainstream. Yeah. And then, so keep your eyes out for that. Okay, that's unfortunate <laughs> to know. One last question, Anna. Like as I said, this is the beginning. You can argue of the Pedro Pascal as daddy archetype. Does he know that that's his archetype at this point? He does. Okay. It's very sweet. He yeah. does. So the way that this actually sort of became full meme mm -hmm. was he and uh, he was given a, the Vanity Fair lie detector pit test. <laughs> and he was asked if he is a daddy. And he was like, yes. He embraced the title of Internet Daddy yeah. and confessed to perusing social media fan sites, like fan accounts, when he feels down. Which uh, You know what? Good for him. I mean, like, you know, I... I I mean this sincerely. There are a lot of we are writers, Anna, and it is possible. I don't know about you. Occasionally, I will check and see what people have said about something that I have written. You know, do I look at that? Yeah, absolutely. And I always like look at actors or actresses. Like, oh no, no, I don't, I don't engage in social media. I'm like, you're lying. Oh, but I love that he eats the fan accounts. Like, he doesn't look at the yeah, comments. Right. He looks at the fan accounts, which awesome. He thinks yeah. he's a better daddy than Oscar Isaac's, which. Hmm. I think he might be. I think of Oscar Isaacs as a peer, whereas, like, for me mm -hmm. personally, <laughs> although Pedro is younger than I am a little bit, I think one of his better quotes about this is that daddy is a state of mind, <laughs> which is especially apropos because he is not a father and apparently does not really plan to be. Huh. And he also has called himself a cool, slutty daddy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I think we need to move Put on. Put that at this on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. Uh, let's this get. Fine. Yes, let's get to Chekhov's what's. Or just it. stay here. We could just stay here for a second. No, no, Anna. I think you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think it's I think it's time to move on. Let's get to Chekhov's what's it. Uh, this is the thing that often appears in Act One of whatever we are reviewing that winds up being relevant again in Act Three. So, listeners, occasionally Anna gets irritated with me on this because it might shock you that I'm usually the first one to come up with this thing, and sometimes I will do you're something. You're the first. You're the one who writes the script. <laughs> you're not the first one to come up with it. <laughs> Actually, I will Dan. take, you know, I, I have the first pass of the script. It's true. Yes. But in this case, apparently <laughs> I, I did what... Anna would have done as well because actually it's and even there I think I've, I kind of feel like I'm cheating because the uh, my suggestion is Chekhov's man in the glass case because I don't think other than that there is anything that pops up in act one that winds up recurring back in act in the last so act there are benefits to being the second person who yeah. had to go with the script okay um one of them is that you make me work harder <laughs> sometimes I gotta I gotta dig a little deeper yeah for some insights because you take the ones that you take the low hanging fruit. I take fruit. the obvious low hanging fruit. Okay, I have to enough. reach yeah. and get the, the fruit okay. that is up higher. Okay. And I think this I did it in this case. Chekhov's parental instincts. Nicely done. Well done, Anna. Okay. I, I think those do show up yes. in Act One and, and in Act do Three. Not go off. Yeah. Until the very end. That's fair. All right. Totally fair. Okay. All right. Speaking of what goes off. <laughs> 
Dan. Should we start with the plot? Let's do the plot. All right, let's get to act one. Last stop on the space train. C is your typical moody teenager, constantly listening to music, writing quasi-fan fiction, and directing some resentment towards her father. In her case, however, some of that anger seems kind of justified. She and her father, Damon, are floaters on the fringe. In other words, they live in a small space pod with few amenities. Damon is in debt and self-medicating in a somewhat dubious fashion. In an effort to better their situation, they detach their pod from a transport spaceship to head to the surface of a forest moon in order to prospect for Orlok, uh, which is a gem that is presumably valuable in this world. There's a bit of a risk in doing this because there's a narrow window for them to launch back to catch the slingback, and this is the transport ship's last run on this route. The pod suffers a malfunction while landing that puts them a bit off course, causing them to land a ways away from their planned prospecting site. The moon's atmosphere contains poisonous dust, so C and Damon have to wear spacesuits to tramp across the forest. On the way to that site, they harvest an Orlac gem from a site that had been excavated by amateurs during the rush years. The gem is valuable enough for them to pay off all their debts. C wants to return to the pod and make sure they catch the transport ship on time, but Damon insists they proceed to the Queen's Lair, which will apparently have enough Orlac for them to afford a more affluent lifestyle in the core. Anna, we you talked about this in terms of the making of the film, but I cannot stress enough. I, in some ways, my favorite part of this film might have been the first, like, you know, 20 minutes of it, because the set design of C's pod and the space shots are pretty goddamn amazing. And that pod is so 1970s analog scruffy. As I said, it really does seem feel a little bit like Star Wars. And I need to know, is there a word for, like, <laughs> nostalgia for old sci-fi representations? Like, I honestly don't know. Is there a word on it? I'm calling it neo-nostalgia. I lo- oh, that's good. Well done. Thank you. But the point, it, I, yeah. Go ahead. I also want to point out that they use paper maps. Yes, which I liked. <laughs> I did like that. <laughs> And, oh my God, she writes, she's writing with a ballpoint pen. Yeah. I, and she's writing with a ballpoint pen in space, which don't do that. <laughs> Not a good idea. Well, they don't, like, they have gravity, I think, was the suggestion, like, in terms right. of what they were doing. Because, like, I think when you see that, when you see them detach, when they detach from the transport ship, the ship is rotating, I think. So that presumably would okay. simulate gravity. That was, that was fine for me. But yeah, like, I, I think that, look this way, there is a small part of me that thinks this might for Gen Xers in particular, will enjoy this because we are old enough to remember these sort of space 1999 representations of sci-fi, which are similar to this. Also, I confess, I was not expecting a Duplass brother to be in a (laughs) sci-fi film, um, but I thought Jay was pretty good as the sort of sad sack prospector. I thought he was good too, and it's very sad sack. Yeah. Very sad sack. The analog stuff is interesting. It, it, much like in Star Wars, it doesn't quite make sense in a way. Like there's stuff like they have a they have a thing that they have to wind right to charge it. There was a gun, I think, that like in order to be able yeah. to fire it, it's sort of like they have to do they have to hand crank it, an electric charge. But at the same time, like it does lend a visceral nature, yeah, to to the experience. That again, I think that for us especially, that's what real space looks like. That's what the real future looks like, Dan. <laughs> The real future looks like Star Wars. Yes, but I mean, it, it, not to be to be clear. When we say Star Wars, listeners, we are not talking about any of the like, oh god, any of the prequels, any of the successor trilogy, for that matter. Not even really Return of the Jedi. We are talking about the like 
Sandy, the, like uh, Star Wars, Star Wars, the original New Wars. Hope, yes, the, the Star Wars, yes, the first the film Star called Star Wars, not Episode yes. Four, called Star Wars, that really did feel gritty and lived in. That was, you know, yeah. so like, yeah. I feel like I need to let the listeners in on something I told you, which is if I seem to not have as much to say about this movie as I usually do, it is because I was high on cough medicine. <laughs> Because Anna was sick this week, listeners. I was sick. Not COVID, but sick. I'm feeling better. Not COVID. I thought it was COVID, Mm -hmm. but you can still get sick from other things. Yeah. I was reminded. I can't. I I was so sure it was COVID. I was on a heavy dose of cough medicine, and this this movie probably looked better Mm. than it might have otherwise Mm -hmm. because I was like dreamy, but um, I, I perhaps was not as attentive. Yes. Actually, I bet the the one of the things that that you see in the in the shots on the forest moon is that there are these dust mites everywhere because that's the thing. I did wonder if that was that, me. Or no, no, that was that was not you. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Okay. Like those were All real. Right. Like that you didn't hallucinate them. All, right. All, right. All right, let's get to Act Two: True Grit in Space. C goes to collect water, and Damon is surprised by two other prospectors, Ezra and a silent companion. They intend to rob him, but Damon persuades Ezra to team up instead. The plan is that they'll head to the Queen's Lair, overpower the mercenaries guarding the site, and divvy up all the Orlac for themselves. Ezra agrees. On a separate comms channel, Damon tells C to follow them to prepare for an ambush. C gets the drop on them, and Damon grabs Ezra's weapon. He opens Ezra's cache, but the silent partner attacks and they shoot each other. Ezra's partner dies, and Damon is mortally wounded. Ezra finishes him off. C flees back to their pod and tries to launch, but the engine misfires and she's stuck. While she is processing this, as teenagers process things, she hears someone try to enter the pod. She shoots Ezra and threatens to kill him. They strike a bargain, while Ezra is sort of cleaning himself off. Ezra will pose as Damon and aid the mercenaries in exchange for passage on the mercenary ship back to the transport ship. C warily agrees. Anna, let's talk about Ezra as a character. Um, to me, <laughs> he sounded a lot like Haley Steinfeld from the True Grit remake. Like, you know, just sort of very ornate language that, you know, you would not expect a prospector to possess. Did that work for you? Dan, 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 Dan. Yes, yes, Anna. He's Mel <laughs> from Firefly. Did you not see that? I mean, he doesn't act. He acts like Jane. Yeah. And talks like Mel. That's, I, a, I, that's I, a pithier way of putting it, yes. I think this movie intentionally or, or not, you know, uh, intentionally or not, owes a bit to Firefly. Mm-hmm. It it feels like it takes place in the same universe. It could, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. No, that's a fair like, point. Mal could fly in at any moment. Like Serenity could fly in. At Certainly, any the moment. economics of it sound very seem very similar. Like again, it's it. Wait, wait, wait. If Firefly existed in this world, they would also be on the fringe. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I felt like. On the page, Ezra might not make much sense. <laughs> his motivations are, and his, I, he, what he does doesn't make much, like, I just yeah. don't know how else to put it. Like, he yeah. he just kind of turns on a dime several times mm-hmm. Yeah, about what his motivations are. Like, shooting her dad is, like, fucking cold. Well, like, that, that I got because I got the impression that at least... Well, except when he goes on. See, I would, yeah. I mean... Like, you know, Joel is nowhere near as hard as Ezra. Right? Hmm. 
Ezra starts out in a, I think, I don't think, well. Hmm. I got to disagree with you on this. I actually don't. You know I what? Think, I'm going to, I'm, yep. Yeah, okay. you're taking it back. Okay. Yeah, go I'm ahead. I'm taking it back. Go ahead. They start about the same. Yeah. But we only get like 90 minutes to see Ezra. Evolve. Yes. Yes. And we've gotten, you know, a mini hour or like eight hours to see Joel take his journey. Right. And I don't think Ezra's just doesn't feel. Oh, you know what it is? It's partially his like happy go lucky kind of facade. Yeah. That makes it harder to believe that he's really undergoing this transformation. Well, it's also not, to be fair, it's not clear to me if it's a transformation per se. Like part of the problem is that with Joel, there's a clear narrative arc. Whereas with Ezra, I I think you're right. Like Ezra's an interesting character. Like, you know, you don't expect. Oh, I would say, I would love to just hear him talk. Right. I mean, his, his, his argot is unusual. But I'm not sure if he evolves. In some ways, it's it's tougher. Ezra's motivations, yeah. Ezra's Ezra's whole thing is murkier. And maybe I think, he has a kid. Yeah. I mean, we don't know like what his backstory is. Like, we don't know if he's actually the cold motherfucker that that shot her dad. Right. And or I, yeah. if he's just doing what he needs to do to survive, and he has people depending on him. I think the question becomes like, let me put it this way. I got the shooting of the, of the dad. Sure. If I still think it's cold, it's but, cold, yeah. but like it, particularly if it was a mortal wound and it was like, is he going to suffer? Or are you just going to like end it? Yeah. There is a logic to that. I'm not, but by the way, it, that might not have been it either. Like, you know, we don't know really. So it's, it, there are yeah. a lot of things this film does not entirely like leaves unanswered. And so that's yes. one of those things. And I don't know if it's intentional. I, I did play a little bit of a game to the extent I could mm-hmm. in the condition I was in of, of spotting where they saved money. <laughs> yes. Like we don't get the surgery scene, mm-hmm. which you're about to tell us about. We don't, there are two actors that could have been played by the same person. Cause we don't see their faces. Three. Yeah. Three different characters who we don't see the face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then most of the, like we don't see any wounding or anything. True. So there's no, very few special effects, like, which is fine with me. Yes. Yeah. I'm kind of skittish about that stuff. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying. I don't anyway, know, yeah. I, I what my point was though is that it's all Pedro. Yeah. Like the the way that it's Pedro and Sophie Thatcher, like they make this movie. Yes. Yes. And you know, I would say yes. What makes this movie is the world building, the literal world building, right. the way that it looks, mm-hmm. and these two actors. Uh, yeah. Actors. Jay Duplass, like I said, I think also does well, but he's yeah, he's, he's good. He's, he's good. out after the first act, so that, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. All right, let's get to Act Three. Sater boys. I, I, I really like that. Uh, <laughs> oh, listen, Miss Pascal's wager. Ezra's arm wound wasn't completely patched up, and it's starting to fester. C and Ezra are approached by another group in the forest that turns out to be satyrs. Uh, in Ezra's words, religious settlers and tedious scavengers. Ezra wants to trade for medicine to fix his arm. The satyrs are perfectly willing to parlay, but it becomes clear that they want to trade for C and are willing to pay a lot. Ezra seems a bit surprised and starts to stall, but is talking. Then C ain't having any of this and bolts out of the trench and runs away. Hours later, with a nearly spent air filter, C hears Ezra on the comms again. She enters the tent and Ezra disarms her, but needs her help to amputate his by now infected arm. As a sign of trust, he gives C back her gun. C helps amputate the arm. We don't see this on screen. And Anna, I'm going to say, totally fine with that. Like, yep. that was yep. not something yep. where even if they had the money, I would have, like, that was more effective 
just seeing the two of them act like that. They, you, like, yes. That, no, in the yeah. sound. Yes, exactly. So like that, th- that was one where I was like, no, that was just well done. No. Um, but in doing so, C demonstrates a bit more grit than Ezra was expecting. And I, I do think one of the things the film handled well, and I don't know how to phrase this. So, you know, is that C's inherent vulnerability as a teenage girl on a moon filled with mercs, zealots and prospectors. The possibility of sexual violence or sexual exploitation is clear, but it's also almost never in the foreground. And I thought that worked. In other words, like you're aware of what could possibly go on, but it also wasn't done in an exploitative manner or like, you know, shouting. You're, and I'm willing to be corrected on this. What do you think? I would say it was never in the foreground for you. Oh, okay. Fair. Well, no, no, no. Like I, I was I, aware I of it. I believe we'd had this conversation yeah. about how much sexual violence shapes women's world every day yeah like it's something that most i think most women i have have to think i don't run i mean i yeah i don't run in a city as much anymore but like right you know it is it is a thing that is a constant presence i want to i know what you're saying i know what you're saying i know what you're saying i'm just saying like i think also a woman watching this movie Mm -hmm. it's slightly different experience that's fair yeah I know you're saying that they were subtle about it and I'm not trying to correct you yeah. like personally, really. I'm mm-hmm. just saying like that even if the filmmakers meant it to be subtle, it wasn't the experience of a woman <laughs> yeah. watching this movie. I thought about it right away. Yeah. I thought about it when they ran into two men, like, uh, right. you know, like uh, that right away is like a problem. Right. Oh no. I, I, I guess the way I would put it is that I thought of, I mean, I was aware of it too, as I was watching it, but like, it wasn't, you know, there's literally only one scene where it's really talked about. And I guess that's the, the, okay. the point that I was trying to make, which is, is sure. that it's there. And maybe it's, I don't know, it, it's foreground. Maybe the better way to say it is that it it's there, but like, they're not taking a hammer and banging you on, you know, the viewer, Right, they're not going further than they need to. Exactly. I think that's the best way of of putting it. Okay. Now, my other question is, do you think Ezra would have agreed to the trade? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with the script. Yeah. I do think it's the script and not... I I think it's the script. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's... it's, He's Pedro, right? He's just Pedro. He's just Pedro. 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 I don't think it's Pedro's uh, (laughs) fault. I honestly, when they when that situation came up, I remember one, thinking to myself, like, "Huh, this will be interesting." Yeah, like I, I, I would have taken it either way. Right, and, and by the way, and, it, and it's it, and it's taken from us. Yeah, and to the extent that Pascal plays the the reaction, it's clear it could have gone either way. It could, you know, yeah, you, you could have believed that Ezra was like just stalling for time. That's how I choose to interpret what he he did. But it easily could have been he would have been willing to make that trade because, you know, he'd known this girl for what, a couple hours at this point? You know, it, it wouldn't have... And he's dying. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't have stunned me. So... Yeah. It was... It, yeah, that, I mean, I, I mean, in, in, one, in, in a way, I think that that, if you want to give the film credit for it, that maybe we should. Maybe the film is a, is slightly more thought-provoking than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I'll blame the cough medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh which is to say, we still don't know as the film ends, like what kind of person Ezra yeah, really is. That's correct. We really don't. We don't know exactly why he's doing whatever any any of the things he's doing, like what his ultimate plan is. I mean, he played things pretty well. Yeah. You know, like he wound up playing his cards just right. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what he would have wanted. 
That's correct. Although, so let's get to this last act and then we can talk about it. Okay. I'm sorry. Fine. Act four, let's have a shootout. Ezra and C get to the Queen's Lair. Um, after some hard bargaining with the mercs, it seems like they have their ride off the moon, provide they can actually prospect the Aurelac. Their efforts to harvest the Aurelac, however, don't work very well, as Ezra is obviously newly one-handed, and it's not his right hand that he can use, and C is inexperienced. They kill the merc guarding them before he can tell his compatriots that they can't do this. The shots attract the attention of the other mercs, and a firefight breaks out as C and Ezra flee into the woods. Ezra is wounded. C tends to Ezra's wound, and then the pair hatch a plan to uh, split apart so Ezra can take out uh, one of the other mercs. It does seem to work. The pair escape into orbit on the mercenary ship, thanks to the man in the glass case killing the last merc. So it's sort of a happy ending? But here, Anna, I will, you know, this is where I, I start to agree with you, which is I love the world building in this film. But I admit the ending was kind of anticlimactic for me, and I'm still not entirely sure what the deal was with that guy in the glass case. Like, I, I, the the head Merck sort of said that he they were paid to bring him there, and I'm not entirely sure I understand what was going on. But you know, Dewey's did you get it? Ex man in the glass case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an arresting visual. I will, you know, like you see it and you're like, what the hell is that? And then like, you know, it's just sort of yeah. left unexplained. I mean, among other things, the simple question is, he kills one of the mercs, which enables them to get on the pod, but, like, he didn't want to get on the pod? Like, what the hell? Like, I think, oh, yeah. oh, that, what I interpret, that part, somehow, I guess I was, you know, thinking for the movie a little bit, which is that he was already going to die, like, in the glass box. Like, he was been exposed to the, the dust. Yeah, I guess. Spore or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so what he was doing was just having revenge on his captors. That's entirely possible, but like it, it, it's so unexplained. Oh, it's not explained. That, yeah, exactly. It's not explained at yeah, all. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I found the ending unsatisfying. I, I, unless you take it as a compliment that we don't know who Ezra is, that we don't know what he's going to do when they get to the ship. Right. There is a lady and the tiger like, aspect to this. I mean, the, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's fair. I think the other interesting question is... I don't know if they intend that, though. I think they... I don't, I don't I'm think they sure do. I'm not sure they intend it to be that mysterious. Yes. And, and the other interesting <laughs> question is, by the way, like it could be pointed out, C didn't have to go back and get Ezra. You know, like, she could have just yes. launched. No, that is... Well, we know what kind of person C is, yeah. actually. That is very clear. Mm -hmm. We know who she is. It's it's Ezra who's remains a mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we? So wait, I, it's not that I disagree with you, but do we know? Like, what do you know about C after the end of this? Oh, like, I think I'm not surprised. I wasn't surprised when she went back to get him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, she's a softie, basically. Like, she can do hard things. Right, I would say she amputates the arm. Like, that's... No, she's yeah. a, I mean, I would say she can do hard things, mm -hmm. but she is uh, a generous person. Yeah. I have to say, I think my favorite moment in terms of Sophie... Because she could have left him with with the arm. Like, she, yeah. he was incapacitated. That's could, true. She could have just, like, yeah. ditched him at the tent. That's true. Know? No, my favorite, I, I, my favorite scene by Sophie Thatcher, I think, this entire film, is really when she's sort of bubbling over with enthusiasm about the, the book that she had, you know, had yeah. written and was writing over and over again. She sounds the most teenagery in that scene, but like, yeah. you know, like it was it was a lovely she sounded almost Bella Ramsey like actually um, yes. in that moment. Yes. So, she you did. know, credit. Yeah. All right, Dan. So, we've covered what there is of the plot. Mm -hmm. Probably spent more time on it than they did. <laughs> and now I have a question. Oh, yes, you do. What is it? Is there IR in this movie? Anna, you are lucky that I am not immune to intrigue. 
because there is a passable amount of IR in this film. As you say, like the film borrows a lot from from Firefly. This is a western in space. That's the the best way of putting it. And like any western, the fundamental problem is how to cooperate in an anarchical environment. And in this film, the real problem is credible commitment, because we see bargains attempted to be fashioned all the time. Damon and Ezra fashion a bargain. Ezra and the satyrs are trying to negotiate something. Ezra and C and the Mercs are trying to negotiate um, something. But the problem is, is that in many of these instances, when you're trying to make a bargain, one side will get what it wants before the other. And without a sort of, you know, simultaneous exchange, when you have non-simultaneous exchange, it requires one party to believe that the other party will credibly commit on following through. And I think the film shows how difficult this is to pull off on the fringe, as it were. You know, among other things, like one of the interesting things is like, and I think like watching it this time, I was surprised, like Ezra agrees to Damon's original proposal. You know, that was actually kind of surprising. And of course, Damon then screws him over. Yeah. You know, and similarly, Ezra winds up screwing over the Mercs when when they realize they can't they can't harvest. So, you know, there's a reason why people carry guns in, in this sort of anarchical environment. It's because Dan. without Lawlessness. law, credibly committing is really hard because that the whole essence of anarchy is that, you know, anyone can do anything at any time. The only other thing I would say, and I'm not sure this is so much IR, but social science, is that I, I did find the satyrs interesting because it would make sense that you would see devout forms of religion in frontier cultures. That is one way in which, you know, units can survive. If you actually have, you know, small group cohesion, which can often be fashioned through a sort of common creed or ethos, it is unsurprising that that uh, they would that would they would thrive in a sort of frontier world. So it's meat and potatoes IR, but but there is IR. <laughs> I appreciated the the satyrs sort of interlude there and mm-hmm. it did there's more to say about it in in a second here. I did wonder about the world building in that particular instance because it suggests that you can live on that world. Right. And I bet they have an answer for this because yeah. one of the things I learned in all the interviews they did is that they have like a Bible for this world. You know, oh, good. They, yeah. They built out like a canon of like everything that happens, but it isn't made clear. Like, I guess, I guess it would be hard to live on that world without going back. But right. Anyway. I, one of the issues. And also they, they, the satyrs are not obviously, it's not like, she, I guess at this point we also know she couldn't take refuge with the satyrs right. anyway but i will say this like one of the interesting things which they did in some ways i would have liked to have heard more about this but like w- one of the things we sh- should say is that one of the things about this forest moon is that it clearly used to be much more heavily populated this was sort of the site of a the equivalent of a gold rush and now the rush has faded completely and you kind of like in some ways i was sort of curious whether there why there wasn't like a little more infrastructure there and so forth yeah but, that yeah. was that's sort of when i said the, the satyrs imply you could stay there i did yeah. have a a there was not quite an explanation for the urgency of getting back. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, the ship is leaving, but yeah. are there no other ships? Is there no other place to stay? Like it, I mean, I, I, I was willing to go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. That part like, I was like, like that, you know, I bet, but yeah. you know, just as questions later. No, totally fair. Well, you know, I have lots of other questions, but I have a particular question for you, Anna. Oh yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan. <laughs> yes, huh? 
A critique of capitalism infests this film like rat beavers infesting <laughs> a spaceship. It's all over the place. <laughs> Threatens to keep the electronics from working because it's so sticky. But at least it doesn't smell exactly like, but significantly more potent than human urine. <laughs> I just, like, this is such a weird script, Otto, because, like, I love the sentences, but, yeah, there were gaps in it. Like, you know, but, like, all of, all of you know, Ezra's, you know, screenplay, you could see why Pedro Pascal loved the script. I, I totally get that. Yes. Yeah. So one of the first things I wrote down... Uh, mining isn't just a great metaphor for capitalism. It's it's obviously it's it's almost fundamental to yeah. capitalism. Mm -hmm. You know, extracting surplus labor from value, extractive operations are the basis for how capitalism works in both a micro and macro level. On a macro level, we have colonialism and industrial economies like gaining a permanent upper hand in the global economy by extracting from less developed countries. And on the micro level, this is how capitalism takes a thing that was once free, quote unquote free, there are a lot of strings attached to that, and then mm -hmm. turns it into a commodity and commodifies labor. If a person has a thing and it is taken from them in some way, <laughs> that is how you create a commodity, right? But the problem is this isn't a level playing field. Right. You know, some people are born with a bunch of free stuff and some people have to literally scratch it out of the ground or taken from them by force, or they scratch it out of the ground and then have it taken from them by force. Right. Um, but if you aren't born owning shit, uh, you will have to scratch the ground for it. Mm -hmm. And you have to start at a point where it makes sense to go into debt and take risks to create, quote unquote, create your own wealth. Yeah. But you're never really going to be fully compensated for it. Um, because you're starting at that disadvantage and you're, what you're really selling is your labor and you have to go back and do it again and again and again, going into more debt, constantly risking life and in this particular instance, very much limb <laughs> in a toilsome marathon of blood and carnage. Ooh, that's like a good novel title in and of itself. Wow. Oh, that's one of his lines. That's one of Ezra's lines. Yeah. Is it one I liked the most? And there's obviously a comment on the privatization of the means of reproduction mm. when the settlers try to buy sea, and that works exactly like any other form of extractive capitalism. You know, what sea was born with, they would turn by force into a commodity. A man's work is no petty thing, as Ezra said, but a woman's work, a functioning uterus, <laughs> is apparently worth a new filter, some juice, and pretty stones. Well put. I will say on the on the mining thing, one of the things I liked again, this the world building is the best part of this film. One of the things I liked is that to harvest the gems, it's not you dig into the earth; you actually have to. For like, it, there are living beings. There are living sometimes. beings that you there, have to. It's like kill. an oyster situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like but it, oyster, but a plant. Like it, it was a yeah. weird, you know. But it, it it's a it's actually what I thought, Dan. It's fecundity. It, it, there, you, there go. you go. If you really want to, if you really want to explore some of the subtext here, <laughs> either intentionally or not, this is a whole film about mining a woman's reproductive organs for something that she created and that you're taking by force and then selling for a profit. So. But but it's well done. Did, yes. yeah, did you have more to say? I'm sorry. No, 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 I didn't. No, no, no. no. <laughs> nope, that's it. No free. I'm, 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 I'm just, you know. Okay, sorry. It's time for some discordant notes. 
Yes, this is where we take questions from our patrons, from the Discord, uh, that ask us about various aspects of whatever it is we are watching and reading. We have two questions that I thought were worthy of a conversation this time. The first question from Bull City Brian is, do we regret, on and I regret, uh, not thinking of Pedroary in time, as in a Pedro Pascal month? And I'm going to be honest, given how Pedroary sounds, you know... <laughs> Anna? Yeah, no. Yeah. No, hard pass. Yep. Hard pass. Yep, yep. And Dan Brennan asks, what would Pedro Pascal's babysitting slash child protective service be called? Uh, Anna, what is yours? Pascal's formula. <laughs> I like mine. I've come up with a new one. Yeah. Foundling fathers. Nice. Thank you. Nice. Thank I like you. it. I'm pleased with All that right. one. All right. Oh. Ping, ping, ping. Oh my gosh, it's a cheaply made space explorer. <laughs> Shedding parts. Yes. It's the debris field. Yep. And this is where we talk about the stuff we didn't have a chance to talk about. I've got some stuff, Dan. What do you got? I only have two things. Um, why don't you start this time? There were good lines throughout. Yeah. He says when he is saying goodbye to his arm, no job too gritty, no love too intimidating. Which <laughs> I just am going to let mine wonder about what that's a reference to. But it was very good. Yes. My favorite line, I think, that I didn't mention here was, uh, I almost did the opening of this, is like, you know, we're in a trough, you and I. Which, that again, applies to a lot of things. Yes. All right, my thing, I loved the soundtrack for this film. It, Which is funny, because I don't think I remembered it the first time I watched it, but this time around it really hit me. And in fact, it's been so good that I've had it on background while I've been writing for the last couple of days. Uh, it was done by Daniel Caldwell. It's just sort of a couple of simple movements uh, combined with like a woman's chorus, but it's like, you know, no words or anything. It's just them chanting and so forth. And it was really affecting. I thought it worked really well. Before I begin. So Dan, do you have one more thing or two more things or anything? Cause I have just two times. I only have one more thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. We mentioned this before, but I'm just going to go down. Actually, uh, I, I retract my equivocation about whether or not it's a good idea to use a ballpoint pen in space because mm -hmm. it's not use a good idea to use one on a plane, Dan. Oh. So, oh. you know, they leak on planes. So I don't know. Like, okay. I just really insist that a ballpoint pen, not only would there be better technology, but she would be just covered hmm. or her shirt, as happens to me, or her purse. You've never had a ballpoint pen leak on you? In, in, on no, I use no? ballpoint pens all the time in, on a plane, and I've never had a problem with that. Maybe I'm thinking of gel pens. I don't know. That's an interesting question. But yeah, okay. I mean, look at this way. Sound I, off I, in the Discord. Yeah. <laughs> this, that sounds like something for the Discord. Um, my last thing is, again, speaking of, of music, one of the things I did love, it was clever, was there was that, I think, Lady Merc in the end, who whenever she wanted to shut up C and Ezra would suddenly play loud music um, on the comms channel, which would sort of make it impossible for them to communicate. And then you would see the Mercs communicate with each other. I, don't, I just thought that was really funny and clever to sort of, you know, demonstrate the sort of limits of, of the ability to communicate in a planet in which everyone has to wear a, a spacesuit. I was checking to see if ballpoint pins <laughs> leak in space. <laughs> Now I'm thinking about is that do. Seinfeld episode where like is that space pen? Yeah, there is a space pen. Yeah, they do. I don't okay. know. It's very. It's 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 you know, roller balls work poorly under pressure. Oh, that general. makes sense. Uh, and actually, I have been much more destroyed by fountain pens 
Uh, oh, well, fountain pens leak all the goddamn time. That's just a well, given. Yeah. yeah. You know, my dad collects them. And he always gives them to me. Oh. And I, which is very sweet. I have a, I have a fountain pen tattooed on my arm in honor of my dad. Aww. I never, I, I never travel with them. <laughs> fountain pens. I, when I was like, yeah, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, my dad travels. He uses a fountain pen. Like that's his pen. He uses, so he uses a fountain pen. That's his he, regular pen. His regular pen. He has carries, oh usually carries at least two. Wow. A black one and a red one. Cause he's a professor, Dan. I'm going to confess, when I was a younger professor, I used to, like, collect fancy pens because that was a nice affectation. I thought, yeah, I should care about this. And the problem is is that all those pens suck, as near as I can figure out. Like, oh, none Dan! Of, yep. Nope. None of them work as well as just, like, a simple big four-color pen for me. I'm I can't sorry. wait for you and my dad to fight. Oh, we will. Yes, we will. We will. So I, my last thing is that's, that's the surgery scene. Mm-hmm. I just want to double down on how great Sophie Thatcher is in that. Yeah. She plays it so well. Actually, you can see the sort of germ of her Yellow Jackets character, I think. <laughs> yes. In that's that. a that's a good way of like, putting it. So much tougher than she looks and she carries it off with a with a panache. Like she you can still she's still really vulnerable and wounded, but she she reasons she's so good at it, she says, is because she was forced to work in a slaughterhouse. Yeah. And I, I love that scene because it really was something where, we're, oh, okay, we're now we're learning about this character. And like we're like Ezra. Yeah. We're kind of stunned that she was able to do that. And then we learn why. Yeah. So, yeah, that and was that was a very – between the, with the two of them, that was an excellent acting moment. Because, like, you also buy – you believe Ezra's arm is being amputated. I love Pedro Pascal's yeah. reaction in that shot in that yeah. scene. So that was well done. I like how he says it's, it. It reminded me of getting a tattoo, actually, when he says it's just going to be a tickle. And then he's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I've never had my arm. I have had my arm heavily tattooed, but I imagine, well, who knows? Anyway, he's probably, I I've, I hope never to be able to compare. I'll just finish, finish. I'll land it. I'll make, make that. Don't lose your end. arm, Anna. That's what I'm trying to say, basically. And I'm going to make my sentence end much like this podcast. <laughs> we have had enough fun. Yep. We are starting April <laughs> next time where we talk to y'all uh, it'll be all michael bay films for the month of april and we're going to begin with armageddon mm -hmm. if you are not a patron please consider becoming one uh and yeah you know what we have amazing reviews dan but people should still give them yeah i don't know if you ever looked at our reviews i have not actually looked at our reviews you should look at our i reviews. should okay i will yeah. check those out yeah you should there's if i'm feeling you know what Anna, if but, i'm feeling you know, if i'm feeling low maybe i will check that out there's some that don't like me really yeah, oh, you know sorry. i guess i i guess i can be kind of annoying that is not um i could be way more annoying than you Anna. okay let's be very clear about this you know okay yeah sure. exactly yeah there we go. <laughs> <laughs> until next time keep this channel open for more <laughs>